Howdy, and welcome to Wise About Texas, the Texas History Podcast. Thanks for listening, and especially thanks for telling your friends about the show. Our audience is growing every day, and the feedback has been absolutely tremendous. Now, this podcast is a lot of work, but it's also a lot of fun telling the stories of Texas history and doing my part to preserve the fascinating history of this great state. Well, we're 180 years from the Texas Revolution, and we're in the time period that the revolution occurred, so we've been focused on those events on the show and the people involved. Now, this episode is being released on March 28, 2016, and yesterday, March 27th, was the 180th anniversary of the massacre at Goliad, so this episode will deal with that event. So let's go back to Palm Sunday, 1836, and get wise about Texas. After the fall of the Alamo, the citizens of Gonzales and points east of Gonzales began fleeing to the east away from the advancing army of Santa Ana. This escape came to be known as the Runaway Scrape. But Colonel James Fannin and a force of about 300 men remained in a fort known as Presidio La Bahia in Goliad. Presidio La Bahia translates, Presidio is fort, La Bahia translates to the bay, was originally located on what was then called La Bahia del Espiritu Santo, or the Bay of the Holy Spirit, which is now known as Mat- part of Matagorda Bay and Lavaca Bay. The mission was moved inland twice, and in 1749 was moved to the north side of the San Antonio River near the, near the present-day town of Goliad. The fort was built on the south side of the river, and the mission on the north, and it still stands there today. Now, the Texians had taken La Bahia on October 10, 1835. A couple of interesting things about this event. First, under orders from Santa Ana, General Martin Perfecto de Cos, now that was Santa Ana's brother-in-law, as you'll recall from prior episodes, had landed in Texas with about 500 men, and he landed at Capano Bay. Cos's orders were to expel any Texians agitating for freedom and to disarm the population. Now, this sort of gun control didn't sit well with the Texas residents back then, as it wouldn't today, and so some men met in Matagorda and decided to attack the fort at La Bahia. This plan was not entirely in noble defense of their freedom, I will say. It seems that Cos had brought with him about $50,000 in Mexican silver. The men intended to get that silver or perhaps kidnap Cos and hold him for ransom. Unfortunately, Cos left Goliad for Behar before the men could get there and, and he took his silver with him. So the men got together and decided that instead of money, they would fight for freedom and drafted a compact evidencing their commitment to preserve the rights that they had under the 1824 Mexican Constitution. They had heard that Cost did not leave reinforcements for La Bahia, so they proceeded to attack the fort. The Mexican commander surrendered in about 30 minutes with minimal fighting. Now, another interesting thing happened on the way to attack La Bahia. As the men approached the fort in the darkness, they missed the road and ended up entangled in a bunch of mesquite. And if you've ever been down there around Goliad, you know what I'm talking about. One of the men spotted someone hiding under a tree, and when they asked who he was, he identified himself as Milam. It turns out that Benjamin Milam had been imprisoned as a filibuster in the early 1800s, and when he was released, he joined the Mexican army and applied for a land grant in Texas. He had helped settle some immigrants near the Red River, but when he returned to Monclova to help them clear their land titles, the Mexicans arrested him. He managed to escape and rode over 400 miles back into Texas, and was hiding that particular night under a tree near Goliad, where the men found him. They took him into the army as a private, and that's how Ben Milam joined the Texian army. And you'll recall from episode 6 of Wise About Texas that he was killed in front of the Casa Reales during the Battle of Behar. 
Now let's dis- discuss Colonel James Fannin. Fannin was born in 1804 as the illegitimate son of Dr. Isham Fannin in Georgia. He was adopted by his grandfather, James Walker, and he was reared near Marion, Georgia. He enrolled in West Point in 1819, but dropped out in 1821. He got married and had two daughters, and in 1834, he moved his family to Texas, settling at Velasco. Now, recall in 1835 that the Texian army was really a group of volunteers, poorly organized, but but zealous to challenge the Mexican authority. Fannin was one of this number, and in late summer, he sent back to Georgia for more officers for the army and more money for supplies. Fannin was present at the October 2nd Battle of Gonzales, which occurred under the famous come-and-take-it flag. He also commanded, along with Jim Bowie, the men who went to Mission Concepcion and routed the Mexican army, which we discussed in Episode 3 of Wise About Texas. After the Battle of Concepcion, as the Texans began the siege of Bejar, the provisional government of Texas began the bickering that would mark almost the entirety of the Texas Revolution. Provisional Governor Henry Smith and the Governing Council, the men that had assembled at San Felipe de Austin, were at odds at almost all times. Meanwhile, the men at Goliad were restless for action. In fact, on December 20, 1835, the men in the fort actually declared independence from Mexico, perhaps celebrating the great victory earlier at Bejar, uh, which made the council very nervous because they had been very careful not to offend any of the local Tejanos. So into this mix were arriving a constant stream of volunteers from the United States. So it appeared to all concern that the Texians had secured the main city of Texas and the army was increasing every day, so the prospects looked pretty good at the time. Now the council at San Felipe decided it would be a great idea to attack Mexico directly and ordered an invasion of Matamoros. Now, the decision-making with respect to organizing this, this expedition was as disorganized as the various factions of the army in the field. The council had selected Fannin to begin recruiting men for this venture. Fannin ended up at the port of Campano on present-day Campano Bay. Now, this was a popular port of entry, and the Texian government, or at least the council part of it, wanted it protected at all costs. Sam Houston appeared to be in favor of that expedition to Matamoros because he believed he would be in command. However, James Grant and Frank Johnson, who were in Behar, lobbied the governing council to be in command, and the council, which was apparently in total disarray, almost uh, authorized almost everyone to be in command. So Johnson and Grant immediately left Behar for Matamoros, which left the remaining garrison in the Alamo without hardly any provisions, as we discussed in episode 10. And Fannin, meanwhile was also in command of something, uh, and he was at Capano meeting some volunteers from the United States. Now, one of those groups was about 80 or so men from Alabama called the Red Rovers. Their commander was a Captain John Shackelford. Another 100 men were heading to Capano under Captain Amasa Turner, and another group from New York had been detained in the Bahamas as pirates but were now under sail for Texas. And no doubt near and dear to Fannin was the group from Georgia that arrived called the Georgia Battalion. Now, Sam Houston had thought himself to be in command of that Matamoros expedition, but found out differently when he finally learned that Johnson and Grant had also been authorized to command the expedition, and they had already left. So Houston proceeded to Goliad and found everything in disarray, but at least his friend Jim Bowie was there and was still willing to listen to him. So he sent Bowie to his eventual fate in the Alamo in Behar and proceeded to ride along with some of Grant's men to Refurio, which is a short distance from Goliad. Along the way, he managed to create much dissension in the ranks about the wisdom of attacking Matamoros 
and also managed to point out that Grant had large estates across the Rio Grande and Coahuila, and perhaps their commander's intentions were not purely in the cause of independence. So Houston used his considerable political skill in that little endeavor. Well, Fannin was now at Refuria with his men, and another bit of news came Fannin's way. Fannin learned that the Mexican army was gathering at Matamoros and planned to march up the Atascacito Road and attack Goliad. Fannin sent some men to San Patricio, which is further toward Corpus Christi from Refurio, left a garrison at Refurio, and left a few men at Capano. Then he took the main part of his force on a retreat back to Goliad. Fannin thought that since the Texans had interrupted Costa's supply line from the port of Capano to Bejar during the siege, which was largely responsible for his defeat, that Goliad would again prove the key to defeating the entire Mexican army. Santa Ana, it turned out later, had planned for this and moved most of his supplies over, over land. In any event, Fannin headed back to Goliad to await the Mexican army. Well, General Urea had indeed organized at Matamoros. He marched toward San Patricio in February of 1836. Fannin had by this time become the Texian commander because Sam Houston had left and gone to East Texas to try to enlist the help of his old friends, the Cherokees. Now, I should also mention that Sam left only after completing his goal of causing many of Grant's men to desert that expedition and rejoin Fannin. Well, once uh, Fannin was back in Goliad, James Butler Bonham arrived from the Alamo with a message to Fannin asking for reinforcements, and that was one of Travis's letters to Fannin that we read a couple episodes back. Now, Fannin actually organized about 320 men and four cannon to go to Travis's aid, but they only made it a couple of miles outside the fort before the wagons started breaking down, and it became obvious that the ragtag force was not going to be any of, of any use to the men at Behar, so Fannin headed back into the Presidio to make his stand. Now, I want to mention at this point a comment made by one of Fannin's men as he later recollected this period. There was a doctor named J.H. Barnard who was spared during the Goliad massacre, which you'll find out in a few minutes. He noted that after abandoning the march to relieve Travis at the Alamo, that the men of the army began feeling a lot of anxiety, and there was a ton of discontent and loss of confidence in Fannin's command. He also noted that Fannin felt this discontent, and it caused, according to Dr. Barnard, a, quote, corresponding depression of Fannin's mind, close quote. I thought that was an interesting observation, and I wonder how it might have colored the events that were to come shortly. Now, Urea indeed encountered the renegade Grant Johnson expedition in Refurio, and he encountered the Johnson part of that expedition and defeated him handily. Grant's detachment had left town, but was soon also found and defeated. An escapee from this engagement rushed back to the fort to inform Fannin of the presence of Urea's army. Now, in future episodes, I'll detail you for you some of the many movements and skirmishes that occurred during this time, as well as some of the bad luck that had attended Fannin's lack of provisions. But for this episode, let's fast forward a little to Sam Houston's arrival in Gonzales on March 11th after the fall of the Alamo. He immediately ordered Fannin to evacuate Goliad and move to Victoria, which would have placed him on the east side of the river and a relative short distance to Gonzales if he was needed. According to Houston, Fannin sent him an answer stating that Fannin had received his order, held a council of war, and decided to disobey it and remain at La Bahia, which Fannin was now calling Fort Defiance. One of Fannin's men recalled that Fannin had sent some men out 
to help the other troops that were in Urea's path and intended to obey the Houston order when the troops finally returned. In fact, one account calls Sam Houston's allegations knowingly false, or as I like to call it, a lie. Houston issued another order to Fannin on March 17th to retreat. Fannin wrote a letter that same day to the editors of the Telegraph newspaper in San Felipe stating that the Mexican army is within five miles and he is preparing to resist, but that he had not retreated because he had not had time to do that. Now, a final note on this matter might be found in a letter that Sam Houston wrote on March 13, 1836, to James Collinsworth, who would later become the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Houston mentions that he would not rely on any cooperation from Fannin and that the Matamoros escapade had already cost over 200 lives. And Houston thought that La Bahia might actually already be under siege. Well, Fannin finally realized he needed to retreat. On the morning of March 19th, the army started out of the fort. Fannin brought his nine cannon with him and about 500 spare muskets, which, of course, added considerable trouble to the march because of all the weight. A cart broke down, one of the cannons fell into the San Antonio River and had to be retrieved, and Fannin then did something that turned out to be very, very wrong. He stopped his army in the middle of an open field to rest and graze the oxen. That was a big mistake. Urea caught up to him. On the open prairie, Urea managed to surround the Texians. Fannin arranged his men in a hollow square formation with the baggage in the center, The men started killing oxen and horses to form their breastworks, and the fighting was intense. Now, the numbers vary, but the Texians had about 10 dead and about 60 wounded. The Mexicans had about 50 dead and 140 wounded, but frankly, we'll probably never know the exact numbers. Now, if you listen to episode three of this podcast, you learned about the Battle of Concepcion and how the battle was an easy defeat of some of Casa's best troops, and how that would color the tactics of the Texians in future engagements. Well, when I was researching this episode, I found a first-hand account of the battle from a doctor who commented that Fannin's previous experience in fighting the Mexican army, which of course included that swift victory in Concepcion, had led Fannin to, quote, entertain a great contempt for the Mexicans as soldiers and made him neglect to take such precautionary measures as were requisite, close quote. So Fannin just didn't believe that the Texians were going to have a problem, and it turns out that victory at Concepcion really did convince many of the Texian officers that the Mexicans just weren't that good as soldiers. And when faced in that open field with an overwhelming force, Fannin just couldn't do anything. Unfortunately for the Texians, the uh, Urea's artillery arrived overnight, and it quickly became apparent that Fannin was going to have to surrender. So officers met on the field, and negotiated the terms of a surrender. And the terms were that the Texians would be treated as prisoners of war, the wounded would be cared for in Goliad, and that the men could retain their personal property. Additionally, the men would be paroled to the United States, not to return to Mexico. And apparently two copies of these terms were written and signed by both sides. Now, there are several accounts that say that the Mexican and Texian soldiers mixed cordially on the battleground after the battle. In fact, one story that's mildly humorous, if war stories can be funny, has it that the soldiers were smoking cigars together and a Texian accidentally threw his lit cigar away without looking where it was headed. Well, it headed towards several kegs of gunpowder, which promptly exploded and injured several men. The Texian prisoners were marched back to La Bahia, 
The wounded were cared for by Texian doctors. And at one point, Dr. Bernard, who I mentioned earlier, had his instruments stolen by some of the Mexican troops. And Fannin attempted to get them back by appealing to the terms of the surrender that I mentioned earlier. And the wounded were cared for in a small church that was part of the fort. So there is, uh, Urea did not mention terms of a surrender. He claimed later that the surrender was unconditional, which will become important. But every account from the Texians includes terms of surrender, written copies of those terms, and everybody seemed to understand that. Well, a few days later, on March 27th, which was Palm Sunday in 1836, the Texians were about to find out that Santa Ana had canceled the terms of their surrender. The Mexicans divided Fannin's men into three separate groups. The wounded who could walk were ordered to march into the yard of the fort. The ones who were too severely wounded to walk were carried into the yard. All of those wounded men were shot on in their beds or on the ground. Fannin's men were divided, divided into three groups. One was marched down the road to Bejar, one was marched down the road to Corpus Christi, and one was marched down a road to an area known as the Lower Ford on the San Antonio River. One account notes that the men were ordered to turn their backs to the guards when they stopped, and they wouldn't do it. They faced their executioners. Some fell to their knees in prayer. Some pled to be spared. One man, Robert Fenner, reportedly yelled to the other men, Don't take on so, boys. If we have to die, let's die like brave men. Several men attempted to escape. One man, Dillard Cooper, threw himself on the ground when he saw the shot that was meant for him. Robert Fenner fell right on top of him when he was killed. Cooper got up and made for a brush fence. A Mexican soldier chased him, ran a sword through a cloak he was wearing, but Cooper managed to unclasp it just at the right moment and it fell off and allowed him to keep running. He ran across about two miles of open prairie and made it to some timber where he met up with another escapee, Wilson Simpson, and after they made it to the river, they encountered two more Texians, Zachariah Brooks and Isaac Hamilton. Hamilton, it turns out, had been severely wounded in two places. The four continued on for about five miles up the San Antonio River from the fort and holed up until dark. And by this time, they had to carry Hamilton because he couldn't walk. Now, they were trying to get to the town of Goliad, which required them to pass carefully by the fort one more time. When they did, they could smell the fires as the Mexicans were burning the bodies of the men they had just slaughtered. After several days of hiding, including laying in mud holes and ponds during the day, the men made it to Lavaca. They found a house whose residents had fled in the runaway scrape, and inside the house the chickens were roaming freely, so there were eggs all over the place, and they ended up with a good meal. The only downside was they couldn't manage to get a fire built, so it was raw eggs all around. After ten days of travel, Cooper was caring for the wounded Hamilton when he heard Zachariah Brooks trying to convince Simpson to leave the wounded man behind. Cooper notes that for all his complaining, Brooks had not once carried Hamilton. Well, Hamilton ended up volunteering for the guys to leave him, and he convinced everybody to go out, go on without him. After they started off, Cooper just couldn't do it and returned to take care of Hamilton, but Hamilton finally convinced him to leave, so Cooper caught up with the other two. And as they tried to run to uh, make it into the town of Texana, they darn near ran into the whole Mexican army camped on their way up the Atascacita Road, but they managed to avoid being seen, and they finally reached the Colorado River at Mercer's Crossing after 12 days of traveling. Hearing a dog bark at the river, they said that was the greatest sound they'd ever heard because they knew that some friendly people were nearby. 
Well, they managed to get across the river and find some horses, and they headed for the army. But by the time they made it back to the army, San Jacinto had already been fought and won. Now, as for Hamilton, the guy they left, it turns out he laid where he was left for nine more days until he was finally able to walk. I don't know if you can imagine laying out there for nine days. But he walked into the town of Texana, found a boat, and was headed down the Colorado River. Unfortunately, the Mexicans captured him and held him with some other prisoners that they had. And one of the Mexicans who was taking care of him really took pity on him and told him that on a certain night he better escape or they were going to be executed. So he got out of there with the two others and he ended up escaping. Now, another account from uh, Judge W.L. Hunter is quite a tale of survival. He was shot in the first volley. And again, a comrade fell on top of him. So he was left there. He eventually regained consciousness, and though he was weak, he managed to get up, only to find that he'd been stripped of all his clothing down to his underwear. In fact, many of the accounts that you'll read of these survivors talk about the Mexicans, men and women, by the way, coming out and stripping these victims of all their possessions and all their clothes. Well, Hunter made it in his underwear to the river and hid in the water. He managed to get up and walk to a local house near Coletto Creek where he was taken care of for a few days. Hunter was uh, then snuck over to the house of a Margaret Wright, where he was hidden and nursed back to health. Interestingly, Hunter lived the rest of his life in the town of Goliad, only about one mile from what was no doubt one of the most harrowing events he'd ever been through. Now, there was another interesting character there who's known only in the record as Kentuck. Apparently, he was adept at playing a Mexican card game called Monty, and had won about 300 silver dollars from his guards at Goliad. When Kentucky, old Kentuck was marched out to be shot, the guard in front of him's gun didn't fire, so he took off. He made it to the river, but with the heavy clothes he was wearing and the 300 coins in his coat, it made it hard for him to get through the water. He made it out of the river and was about to be caught by some Mexicans on foot when some of the silver dollars fell out of his pocket. Every one of the guys that were chasing him stopped to fight over the coins on the ground, which allowed him to gain some ground on his pursuers. And as he kept running, every time they'd get close to him, he'd throw a few dollars out and the soldiers would stop and look for the money for a while. Eventually, old Kentuck found another survivor and together they reached Sam Houston's army and they actually ended up fighting at San Jacinto. And the day after the battle, it said that old Kentuck was asking around if anyone wanted to play a little money. Now, there were several other survivors of the battle, but we're going to save some of those stories for future episodes. I want to tell you two more interesting stories, one sad and one uplifting. First, the sad one. Colonel Fannin was wounded in the battle at Calido Creek and when the Texians were captured, so he was not marched out with his men. In fact, he was the last one of the men to be executed, and he was taken into the small courtyard outside the chapel at La Bahia. Now, Fannin knew what his fate was to be, and he faced it courageously. He took out a gold watch and he presented it to the officer. He told him, he told the officer that the officer could have the watch if he would make sure that Fannin was given a Christian burial. The Mexican officer agreed. Fannin then asked that he not be shot in the face, but through the chest. Well, the Mexican soldiers put their guns to his face, shot him in the face. The officer kept the watch and Fannin's body was thrown onto the burn pile with the rest of the Texans. Well, I'll end with a little bit more uplifting part of this whole tragic episode. There was a Mexican captain named Telesforo Alvarez in Urea's army. 
and he had a female companion with him on the Texas campaign named Francita. Now, her name is spelled different ways, but we're going to use Francita Alvarez. Francita is known today as the Angel of Goliad. Senor Alvarez interceded on behalf of Mexican prisoner Reuben Brown, who had been captured in the San Patricio battle in February, and, and saved him from execution. When she arrived in Copano, she also tended to some other prisoners that were captured in a skirmish near there. When she learned what was to be the fate of the Goliad defenders, she pled with Mexican General Garay and actually convinced him to spare many of the Texians. She also hid some of the men herself until after the massacre. And she saved a 15-year-old Texian who no doubt looked more like a child than a soldier. Now here's where it gets interesting. After the revolution, Francita Alvarez faded from history. In fact, in 1936, which was the year of the Texas Centennial, there was an article in the Dallas Morning News about Francita saying she had indeed faded from the record. But shortly after that article appeared, a lady named Elena Zamora O'Shea wrote a letter to the editor of the Dallas newspaper saying she had been a teacher on the King Ranch and had met a gentleman named Matthias Alvarez, who was the son of Francita and Telesforo Alvarez. Matthias Alvarez said that they had settled in Matamoros after the revolution and that after his father's death, Matthias had come to work on the King Ranch and had brought his sister and, more importantly, his mother with him to live on the ranch. And it said he said that Captain King had known Captain Alvarez while Captain Alvarez was alive and that Captain King and his wife Henrietta knew who Francita Alvarez was and that she was the angel of Goliad and that they respected her identity by burying her in an unmarked grave on the ranch to prevent the grave from being disturbed later. Well, I did a little checking, and some folks who would know believe that the Angel of Goliad is buried somewhere close by behind the main house on the King Ranch. Another interesting part of the Angel of Goliad story is that her son Matthias had 12 children. Now, some of those descendants still work on the King Ranch. One of her descendants is Lauro Cavazos, who lives in Kingsville, and he was Secretary of Education under President Ronald Reagan and the first Hispanic to serve in the cabinet of the President of the United States. So the Angel of Goliad has had quite a positive impact on Texas and the United States going all the way back to 1836. She is definitely the most uplifting part of the Goliad story, and her descendants continue to contribute significantly to our state and our nation. Well, the Goliad Massacre was a horrible event in Texas history. Many of the Mexican officers detested Santa Ana for ordering the execution. The accounts of the survivors often reference the disgust on the part of many of the soldiers called upon to execute that dastardly order, but executed they did and provided more motivation to the Texian army as they charged less than a month later on the plain of San Jacinto to shouts of, Remember Goliad. Well, now we come to the part of the episode I call Getting There, where I tell you where a couple of these places are located and where you can go see them. Presidio La Bahia is located just south of the town of Goliad, Texas on State Highway 239. You'll pass Goliad State Park and Mission Espiritu Santo, and the Presidio is on a hill to your left. Now, interestingly, the old Mission Espiritu Santo is owned by the state of Texas, and the fort is owned by the Catholic Church. In fact, church services are still held in the chapel and the fort. That's where the wounded were after the battle. You can stand just by the wall outside that church on the very spot where Fannin was executed. I also encourage you to go to the fort, climb the ramparts, and look sort of to the northwest. 
you can picture the scene on March 27, 1836. Now, as I said earlier, this episode is being released on March 28, 2016, and this upcoming weekend is the annual reenactment of the massacre and the Living History Weekend at the Fort. So if you decide to go, tweet the show, because I'll probably be there. Now, the old port of Capano no longer exists, but the town site is still barely there if you know where to look. You'll need a boat for this one, and you'll have to go. And if you get in the water at Bayside and go north along the coast about four miles or so, you will see Capano. Um, the Battle of Coletto Creek occurred in what is now uh, the Fannin Battleground State Historic Site. It's in a small community just outside of Goliad, appropriately named Fannin. So just east of Goliad on 59, you'll turn south on FM 2506. That's 2506, and you'll find the battleground. And that battleground will have a reenactment this coming Sunday also after the program at Goliad. Now right behind the Presidio La Bahia, you'll find the grave of the Goliad victims. There's a large marker, which is actually a tombstone, and the buried and burned remains of the Texians, included Fannin, are interred at that site. So I encourage everyone to spend some time in the beautiful and historic town of Goliad and take a moment to visit the fort and reflect on the sacrifice that was made there. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Wise About Texas. I really appreciate all the great feedback this show is getting. We're getting some great suggestions for episodes. I'm writing down every one of them. So if you've got some suggestions for future episodes, please let us know via Facebook. You can email the show at host at wiseabouttexas.com. But follow the show on Twitter at wiseabouttexas and send me a tweet about things you'd like to hear about. Be sure and like and share the Wise About Texas Facebook page. We've got almost a thousand likes on that page already. And our audience has been growing significantly. So once again, we thank you for listening and tell a friend about the show. Well, until next time, God bless Texas and we'll see you down the road.